Hi, I'm Jeremiah. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And, and this, this is, is Under, Under the, the Covers. Covers. Welcome back, everyone. It, it's been a while. It has. Feels Ste good to be back. It does feel good to be back. Uh, Steph and I have been quite the pair the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've had some challenges. We have had some challenges. <laughs> There were the basic challenges with winter. Uh, we had a snowstorm a couple weeks ago. Yeah. A couple Wednesdays ago, we had a freak ice storm, and I uh, slipped outside my house and ended up breaking my hand. So mm. I was out for a bit with that. I know that you've been dealing with some yeah, cold flu. Yeah, I've been sick. Flu, Lost like... my voice, and then was just generally sick. And every time we, we've probably rescheduled this recording session. What? Twice, three times now. This is the third, yeah. This is our third attempt. So third time's a charm. Here yeah. we are. We're recording and we're excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Our original idea for this episode was to have it for you guys in time for Valentine's Day. And so if you do celebrate Valentine's Day, we hope that you had a great time, either in the traditional sort of romantic way mm -hmm. or in whatever way you choose to celebrate. Jeremiah, do you watch Parks and Recreation? I the, don't the watch TV Parks show? and Rec. It is on our list of shows that we need to watch. But. Yeah, that is a great show. So I always, <clears throat> I actually associate Valentine's Day a little bit with Parks and Recreation now because there's two ideas that I got from that show about Valentine's Day that I that I really love. Yeah. So one of them is Galentine's Day. What is Galentine's Day? Galentine's Day. So on the show, Amy Poehler's character, Leslie, organizes uh -huh. Galentine's Day um, for all of her female friends. Okay. I think in the show she does it on um, February 13th. Of course. Galentine's Day. You know, gal pals. Yes. And she treats them to brunch and she gives them all gifts that like celebrate womanhood and... Uh -huh makes a point during the brunch of telling them all these wonderful qualities that she sees in each of them. And it's really nice because I think in general our culture kind of encourages women to be competing with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in movies where you see a lot of female friendship, a lot of times the scenes are depicting envy and jealousy or like sure. one-upping type yeah. Between scenarios women. between women yeah. yeah the movie that there's a ton of movies with this with these kinds of themes but one that comes sure. to mind is bride wars i haven't seen, seen bride wars bride wars is about these that's Catherine hagel right um no what am i thinking it's of? kate hudson and anne hathaway I oh think. okay yeah it's these two women who are like best friends uh -huh. who spend a large portion of their childhood and adolescence talking with each other about these like dream fantasy weddings they have where mm -hmm. they would each be each other's maid of honor and that was almost more important than whoever the groom ended up being they, you know it was yeah. so like they both loved weddings and they were such good friends and then they end up wanting to get they get they get engaged at like the same time mm -hmm. and it becomes like a who's gonna have the better wedding oh, kind of thing and I don't know. I, so that comes to mind. So instead yeah. of that, mm -hmm. seeing Parks and Rec showing women supporting and uplifting each other was really nice. I really that's love cool. that. And so making Valentine's Day not only a day that celebrates romantic love, but also friendship. And sure. particularly, you know, for me being female, female mm -hmm. friendship. Yeah. You know, I think that's really a nice thing. That's cool. What was the second thing? The show does not depict this second thing as directly connected to Valentine's Day. Yeah. It's a separate episode, but I personally connected it to Valentine's Day, and that yeah. is Treat Yourself Day. Okay. So Treat Yourself Day is a day where 
you treat yourself to nice things, mm-hmm. nice experiences, yeah. stuff that you maybe normally wouldn't indulge in. Yeah. It's kind of self-explanatory, you know. Sure. It's a day when you treat yourself. And so for folks who are not in relationships, it, maybe you like Valentine's Day as a romantic holiday, but your partner kind of hates it or yeah. doesn't want to participate or whatever it is. Making Valentine's Day about treating yourself instead of the traditional romance component mm. mm-hmm. can be a nice way. You know, it kind of moves away from the whole, like, oh, boo-hoo, single people are so sad on Valentine's right. Day right. kind of model yeah. that we see. So anyway, I love Parks and Rec. Yeah. I love these ideas. And it since I've started associating them with Valentine's Day, I've, I've liked the holiday so much more. And if you at home have not seen any of those scenes from Parks and Rec, I encourage you to go on YouTube and... Yeah, more reasons to start watching Parks and Rec. Yeah, great show. I'm curious how Valentine's Day shaped the way that you view relationships. There is a commercial component Mm. to Valentine's Day. I remember I know that I uh, first paid attention to Valentine's Day when I was like six and was buying uh, Ninja Turtles cards for uh, everybody in my class. But then the six-year-old version of me knew that it wasn't just for everybody. There was something special about a girl getting one of my cards with a Donatello saying, (laughs) rad dude, or whatever Donatello says. I suppose that was Michelangelo actually that said that. But I remember similarly being in elementary school and the significance and the meaning of yeah. the, of the class valentine mm-hmm. right like the cards that you give to everyone but like right. if all the cards are slightly different like making sure you pick your favorite one to give to your crush or right like really reading into it if someone signed the card like love, love. stephanie that's right instead <gasps> of from stephanie yes that's like, an important ooh, distinction ooh. what does that mean does she that's like right. me that's you know, so lots of child drama associated with that <laughs> yeah. getting and receiving and, um, get, or excuse me, getting and giving Valentines. Yeah. What did Valentines teach me about relationships? Was that your original question? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that it, it taught me about what relationships are supposed to be like specifically, but mm-hmm. it's a very sort of show offy kind of day. Yeah. And I, I always, to be honest, I do like Valentine's Day. Sure. I prefer to celebrate it as treat yourself day. But yeah. that being said, I do, I like the romance. I like excuse, I like all holidays because I like excuses to celebrate things. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think that the commercialism is, is frustrating. But yeah, I think the messages about Valentine's Day are always about like, this is the day to not only celebrate your relationship with yourself, but sort of show it off to other people. Mm. You know, especially nowadays, people going well, on Instagram and yeah. posting pictures of the flowers they got from their partner. Or the, right. The date that they're on or whatever Don't knock the flowers that I got from my partner. Yeah, no, I'm not knocking the flowers. (laughs) I'm knocking the need that some folks have to... Showcase. Showcase it, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, not to say, like, it's exciting. You know, you get a gift from your partner, you want to share that. But I think this speaks to when we were talking about dating Mm -hmm. and we were talking about social media and self-branding and having a certain carefully curated image of yourself out there on the internet. I think Valentine's Day plays into that a lot. For you know, sure. it, it's sort of the branding of your relationship to yeah. outside parties when you do something and then post a bunch of pictures of it and yeah. you know. How about for you? We've talked off and on about the the narratives of uh, heteronormativity that relationships are meant to be between uh, boys and girls, men and women. There was this really interesting thing that we did in middle school. There was this 
primitive Match.com thing that went on. <laughs> and this is in like the mid-90s, so this is before Match.com was kind okay. of a, a real idea. But we found out these surveys about things we liked and we didn't like. And the way that we thought relationships should go. Um, I like w- long walks on the beach, those kinds of things. Oh, Ideal dates, the I like. Think we did, did you that. do this too? I, I was trying to. Rem- forgot about it. I was trying to remember what it was called. It was like Valentine's Grams or something like that. It was something Grams at the end of it. I don't remember. I just remember it, we got a printed out list yes. of all the people we yes. were matched with. Uh-huh. It was a big deal. We were matched with like five oh, people so on the list. But it was five people of the opposite sex. Oh, yeah. Uh, based right. on similarities of the answers that we had. And all of this is going on and we still couldn't figure out how to talk about sex in positive ways. Right. But I digress. It was kind of nerve-wracking. I mean, I usually got matched up with people that I didn't know. But every now and then a classmate name came up and I thought in my super awkward 12 year old self oh my goodness what does this mean oh my gosh she likes me mom then I had my 12 year old freak out which usually resulted in me doing absolutely nothing except freaking out those are the memories that I associate with with middle school and and things that I learned about relationships in Valentine's Day that Mm. the best relationships are the ones in which you have a lot of things in common uh, in which you match uh, about similar things which I think that there's some value to that. Yeah. But by the time that we were in high school, Valentine's Day became less important. And, you know, we found more ways to couple. Mm. Touch between boys and girls usually symbolized that something romantic was going on. You know, I remember holding the hand of a girl for the first time and the sensation of my heart beating, something illicit was going on. (laughs) And so it felt anyway, and I was lucky enough to participate in it. Kissing, the touch and pressing of lips and mouths and tongues carried an extra level of intensity. Um, Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. But this is uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was touch in relationships. And as usual, we wanted to start with how we learn about these different things, how we learn uh, about relationships, but also how we learn about touch. So that's right. Our episode today is about touch. And so because of our recent health problems that we (laughs) alluded to, we're actually not doing a song today at all. Which is unfortunate. Which is we were unfortunate. going to do the song Every Time We Touch by Cascada. Cascada? Is that the group that does it? I think it's, every I don't time think it's we a touch, group. I, I think it's just a woman. Feeling. Is it a group? Anyway, but I, I love this song and I think acoustic versions of this song are really cool. Yeah. But in particular, I like this song for this topic, not just because the word touch is in the title and oh, that makes it appropriate for mm-hmm. this topic, but also because. It, for me, is a reference to this time in my life, Jeremiah, that you're talking about, this yeah. sort of middle school, high school, adolescent phase where the meaning of touch is sort of starting to shift and change and kind of grow up a little bit. Yeah. Sexual touch with others is starting to become part of our experience mm-hmm. in a yeah. way that it wasn't when we were kids. And so I was going to ask you, Jeremiah, if there are any moments that stand out to you from adolescence when an experience of touch was particularly meaningful and impactful. Well, else, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, relational or sexual, but... But that is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, right. The first moment that comes to my mind is is my first kiss. Yeah. Um, I remember where I was. Um, I was on my back driveway. Uh, I was a girl that lived a couple of houses down the street. You know, I remember both what it felt like to touch another person's lips. That kind of physical sensation. I can still remember that. Um, I remember kind of what was going on in my body, my my heart beating, my hands becoming uh, clammy because I was like, 
oh my goodness, A, is this really happening? B, am I, am I doing this right? Is this the way that this yeah, is supposed right. to go? That's something that really stands out to me as a, a time that, that touch was uh, really important in a, in a peer kind of context. Um, there are other times when touch was important from like adults in my life. Like I remember, for instance, playing baseball and I made a, a really good play. And I remember that the coach came out and he picked me up and hauled me over his shoulders. Aww. I remember that being a really neat moment yeah. in my life because I sucked at baseball. I, mean, <laughs> I played it for a while, but uh, I can catch a ball, but... but Apparently, there's a lot more that you need to do in order to be good at baseball, you know, like hitting and throwing Aww. and things like that. So, But the, yeah, that's something that, that stands out to me yeah. as a fun time of being touched, of being embraced in a really positive way. Yeah, that sort of affectionate, playful. Yeah. Hey, I'm proud of you. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah what about cool. for you? I also think of my first kiss and a couple of other kiss-type moments. One thing that stands out to me... I remember I had this huge crush on a guy in eighth grade mm-hmm. that lasted, I don't know, at least a year. I was like, really wanted this guy to be my boyfriend. Yeah. And we were good friends. Yeah. And we hung out as part of a group together. And there was this one particular summer, I think it was the summer before we started high school, where this one particular group of maybe five or six of us would hang out like every day. And... Anytime I had any kind of interaction of touch with this guy, it would be in my head for like weeks. And I can remember swimming together and Mm -hmm. one or the other of us didn't bring a towel. So we shared a towel and it was not sexual, you know, like we're part, we're in this group and we're not touching each other in a sexual, but you you know, we're basically, you're sharing a towel with someone you're touching. You're touching and it feels good. Yeah, it felt really nice, yeah. and I remember that really stood out to me. In a way where, you know, as a six, seven, eight-year-old playing with a friend, if you've got a towel sort of wrapped around both of your shoulders, maybe you're not quite thinking about it in that way. Or, I don't know, maybe you are as a kid. Kids have crushes, too. But Of course. But I remember that time in my life being a time when the, the meaning of touch had this undercurrent of, like, emerging sexuality. Mm-hmm. Interesting yeah. to think back on that. Definitely. Yeah, emerging mm-hmm. sexuality and, and what does this mean? What does this mean for our uh, relationships? What does it mean for myself as a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old? Right, does this touch mean that he likes me? Exactly. I think that was a frequent yep. thought in my head at that time. Yep. Well, and this is one of the things that we want to talk about today. The reality is that touch is an important part of being relational. But there's also an enormous amount of anxiety around touch. So how can we become comfortable again with touch, both in romantic and platonic relationships? And work against uh, some of the messages of anxiety around touch. There's this video going around on Facebook of these two elementary school teachers who have these elaborate handshakes for each of their students. Have you seen this? I haven't watched it, actually, but I've seen the video going around. The first kid in the line slaps 10 up high before dabbing, and then the kid goes to class. <laughs> the next kid in the line steps up and does this back slap, forward slap, shake thing, uh-huh. and then the next kid. And then 20 kids later, the teachers, one male and one female, have done this individualized handshake 20 times. And it's really cool to see. First of all, the kids are really excited about this. They're leaning into these handshakes. There's beaming smiles on their faces. It's really cool to see this because there's been an increased amount of anxiety surrounding touch between adults and children. Yeah. 
That's really true. You know, I think about, um, as therapists, Mm -hmm. the anxieties that come up around touch between therapist and client. For sure. I remember when I was in graduate school and I was taking a course on ethics, Uh we had a whole session about touch. Conversations about ethics almost always devolved into conversations about touch in my program. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember we were asked this question. If you worked in a mental health agency Mm -hmm. that had a policy that said the clinicians working for that agency were under no circumstances allowed to touch clients, which is real. A lot of agencies have these policies. Um, If you had a child client who had just had a parent die and you had a good session with that child and they asked you for a hug. And maybe you also have in the back of your mind, you know that a colleague was like recently fired for touching someone so they're pretty serious about this policy yeah what would you do would you give the hug and risk your job would you protect your job and risk telling this suffering child that you're not going to hug them and what is this anxiety around touch in the first place exactly. like when did touch become a liability so the questions that i remember being asked uh, either directly or indirectly in graduate school is do we touch our clients and if we do touch our clients How will our clients receive it? Hmm. If we touch our clients, what does that say about our relationship? Will our clients experience some sort of sexual transference? By the way, don't have sex with your clients. That was usually (laughs) the train of of conversation that we had around touch. Hmm. Ten years later, I would, of course, answer that in a completely different way, recognizing how important touch is and providing security for the children that we're working with. I think that's one of the reasons that anxiety develops is that for many of us, touch is really strongly linked between sexuality rather than security, Mm. attachment, and belonging, which is what touch is initially about in the first place. With infants, for instance, infants have an innate desire to be touched, to be held. Perhaps you've seen these experiments done where you have a mother and a child and the mother is told to be completely non-responsive to the child and uh, the child freaks out. A child's trying to figure out ways to get to the mother to get her attention by crying, by trying to joke, uh, by doing all sorts of things. Touch is something that is very similar to oxygen for children. It is a need, absolutely. But it transfers pretty quickly out of this realm of just being about safety uh, to touch being about sexuality. Yeah, it's interesting to notice when that happens Mm -hmm. in terms of age because, you know, we're so primed to touch infants to the point where, you know, you see pregnant woman or a new parent with their infant and strangers will without consent touch people's baby bellies or reach out and touch the little hand of an infant yeah you know if you're on the t you see these or the t the subway if you're not in boston Boston, clearly we have such comfort with infants Mm -hmm. that we touch them without getting permission sometimes don't do that folks yes that's not a good idea but yeah and then at some point touch becomes as you've been saying kind of loaded with anxiety and and maybe paired off with the idea of, ooh, touch is sexual, and um, we need to be really careful about that. There are instances of children experiencing unwanted touch. That is a really, really tragic 
thing with long-lasting implications. Bessel van der Kolk, who has written about trauma, reminds us that that the inappropriate, non-consensual touch carries on as physical memories in our bodies. Some of this anxiety is relevant, let's be clear, as we're talking about where does anxiety come from. However, at what point does that anxiety become counterproductive? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there are times that that anxiety becomes counterproductive. Mm -hmm. You know, I also think one thing that's really unfortunate is that there definitely are gender differences in the way that folks kind of grow up and experience touch. And then the comfort level that people have with touch as they get older in terms of who they can touch comfortably and what that might mean. Like, uh, I think that adult women are far more comfortable touching each other and touching children Mm -hmm. compared to adult men. Because with men, we've been talking again about heteronormativity. And if there's this intimate touch between two adult men, other than like this bro kind of side hug, slap on the back kind of Mm -hmm. thing, if something moves further than that, well then, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's some sort of additional intimacy, even sexuality, uh, sexual feelings between me and my male friend, and then having to deal with messages about sexual orientation and how much anxiety straight men particularly have around maintaining appearances as straight men. I think part of what, what happens is that we've talked in previous episodes about the idea of men being culturally expected to suppress their emotions, Mm -hmm. to not show vulnerability and expressing feelings of love and warm regard for other people is vulnerable. Right. And so if men aren't allowed to do that or are discouraged from doing that, I think for many men, sex becomes an appropriate outlet for doing that. And so when a affectionate touch and sexual touch are kind of paired together as a way of, well, this is a safe way for me to communicate my feelings or for me to be in my emotion. Then when men are interacting with each other Mm -hmm. and touch is part of the interaction, there's this thing where it's like, well, wait, I think of touch as the way I express affection in my sexuality Mm -hmm. and so if I touch this other guy, what does that mean? And God forbid I be perceived as gay. You know, I yeah. think it's really, there are a lot of folks who say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so open. I'm so accepting of everyone. But if that person were mistaken for mm-hmm. being gay, they'd be offended. Right. So if you're listening to this and you think about this, I mean, I think most people on the surface at this point in 2017, I hope, I think culturally we're at a place where most people are saying, I support the rights of LGBT folks. Think about if somebody thought that you were gay Mm -hmm. and you're not, you don't identify that way. And would you be offended by that? Because if you would be offended by that and be honest with yourself, Mm -hmm. maybe you've got a little bit more work to do in getting those biases out of your system. Definitely. Like I said, there's no need to be ashamed of it. We all live in this culture. We all absorb the same kind of messages around what's expected of us. But it's important to kind of become aware of those prejudices. For sure. So if you're talking about men touching other adult men and some of the anxieties around that, I also notice this anxiety around men and daughters. Ooh, yes. Uh, we see this happen quite a bit in family therapy. Yeah. You know, a father is incredibly intimate with preschool and elementary age daughters. They give each other tight hugs. There are piggyback rides. However, once a girl begins to go through puberty, particularly once they develop breasts, 
the nature of the hug changes from a front hug to kind of this quick side-to-side hug. Mm. We learn that opposite-gendered hugs must communicate some sort of sexual attraction. So if I give my daughter a full frontal hug, and if I feel her breasts against me, and even if that feels good, what does that say about me? Mm. Now we're moving from the question of, is someone going to think that I'm gay, to is someone going to think that I'm a pedophile? Yeah. What might my daughter think? Is yeah. she going to be uncomfortable? What might other people think about that? Right. I mean, I think, again, connecting back to the idea of having affection paired with sexual touch, having emotional expression paired with sexual touch, if that is the way that a man has gotten comfortable expressing his affection to his partner, that's yep. one thing, but then he may, uh, like you're like you're talking about, mm-hmm. there are some men who will pull back from touching their daughters because of this yeah. anxiety, and they'll try to express their love in other ways. So maybe I see a lot of men talking about the great importance of providing financial support to the family, mm-hmm. doing things for his children, fixing his daughter's car, buying gifts, things that are ways of communicating affection and love, but that are not verbal because we do have sort of a social norm against doing that for men, unfortunately, and touches out. But for daughters, women are socialized differently than that. We are socialized to express emotions verbally. And so for young daughters, you know, children and teens who don't really have the adult perspective quite yet to understand this struggle that their fathers may be going through and who maybe even as adults will never really understand Mm -hmm. why they can't just say I love you or something like that. Those can create really profound feelings of being disconnected. As you're talking, Steph, I'm also thinking that oftentimes the publicness of touch if other people see touch, see me touching someone, what are they going to think about me? Yeah. Uh, I had this privilege of working with youth groups at uh, churches for summers when I was in college. And there was one night that I was speaking with a young woman and she let me know that she had experienced date rape earlier that year. Uh, she told me about the experience. I sat and listened and at the end gave her a word of encouragement and a hug. We went our separate ways. Uh, the next night... One of the parents pulled me aside, asked me what was going on, not from a place of concern on behalf of the student, but out of anxiety that I was trying to start something romantic with this young woman. Because they saw the hug. Yes. Even my less assertive 21-year-old self had the words, are you fucking kidding me, (sighs) floating around in my mind. And I actually think that this is one of the damaging side effects of the anxieties that we uh, place around uh, touch, such as uh, such as rape culture, uh, for instance. Not that this isn't a, something to be anxious about, but one of the byproducts of this is that there are messages that assume that men are automatically sexual perpetrators and women are automatically helpless sexual victims. Yeah. And so our brains kind of put people into those roles. So men have to be mindful of the ways that conversations and touch are perceived. At 21, I was fully aware of this. I made sure to have the conversation outside in a lighted parking lot at a time where I knew we could have privacy, but not so much privacy that we were the only folks in a facility. There were one or two other parents outside. And even then, that anxiety around touch was was very present. These are experiences that uh, let them know that touch, even authentic touch, uh, isn't particularly safe. Not just to be receivers of, but also givers of. 
I do want to have a conversation about consensual touch and non-consensual touch because I think that that's a really important conversation to have. Yeah. But I also think that one of the things that creates anxiety around touch is if we touch somebody in public, there is a possibility that other people are going to have thoughts about this. Yeah. And then how do we interact with those? Right. How can we be differentiated enough to, well, I'm going to kind of put my arm around this person anyway. Yeah. Um, at, at 21, I didn't have that at that time. I was going to say earlier, as you were talking about the fathers and daughters piece, mm-hmm. and as a side note, I think this is a problem not just for daughters, but for sons too, for the same reasons that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I think fathers tend to learn from their own fathers. Yeah. So whether that means they learn what they want to emulate or what they want to avoid doing, men learn from each other about how to be men. And so shifting some of these norms around touch really can begin in the family. Men, find ways to touch your kids. Yep. <laughs> I think a Hug gentle them, tickle them. Pat on the back. Pat on the back. Pat on the shoulder, ruffle the hair. You know, yeah. we could we could name a bunch of things. I think something that can be really even more powerful than just doing those things in isolation is pairing that kind of touch with words that tell your kids things like you're proud of them or you're grateful for something that they've done, you're having fun with them, you love them. These kinds of interactions have huge implications for our lifelong confidence and well-being. So I think, again, that a conversation around consent is important. And I think, you know, we've talked about how a lot of the anxieties around touch emerge from rape culture and from a culture in which sexual abuse is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about wanting to get rid of some of that anxiety so that we can be more free with touch and we can be more engaged with each other. But that being said, sexual abuse is a reality. It is. Um, Sexual assault is a reality. and, And that can have a really profound impact on the way that touch is received. For, for many folks who've Absolutely. experienced this. Right. Um, and so I, I want to just kind of talk about that for a minute Let's. here. Survivors of sexual abuse or sexual assault have had their boundaries violated. And so this process of consent around touch that we're talking about has been taken away. And so mm-hmm. we hear the word trigger a lot. Touch can be a trigger for these people, especially sure. if it's unexpected or if it's from a person that they don't maybe know super well. Right. And so what does a trigger mean? A trigger is something, if you've experienced some type of trauma, a trigger is something that occurs later that mm-hmm. brings back up feelings that were connected to the trauma. So like anger or grief or rage or shame yeah. or anything like this. And so if you're listening to this and, and you feel like maybe this applies to you, like mm-hmm. touch can be triggering sometimes. I would recommend developing a sort of a script to have kind of ready in your mind for asking someone to stop touching you and then practice using that script with people that you are comfortable with, like a close friend or a therapist. So for example, you might say, please don't touch me without my permission. Something as simple as that. You don't have to disclose Mm -hmm. um, that something happened to you if something happened to you you can have something like this in the back of your mind even if you've never experienced a trauma and you just don't like to be touched by strangers or people you don't know very well but just the process of clearly stating what your boundary is or what Mm -hmm. your boundaries are you're able to then build more confidence in your ability to decide what's happening to you and your body if you're interested in some more resources about this there's a book called healing sex by Stacey Haynes that I'd yeah. really recommend. It's a really, really good book. Yeah, it's it's written with women survivors 
in mind. Yeah. But the tools in the book are really useful. They're really concrete. For any gender. Yeah. So I'm curious how we can distinguish between consensual touch and non-consensual touch. Not necessarily what the difference is between the mm-hmm. two of them. But what are experiences in which non-consensual touch is welcome? And what are situations where it's probably a good idea to get consent around touch and respect for the relationship? I I think it's a good question, especially like what you just said, the idea of when is non-consensual touch welcome? I think hearing the phrase non-consensual touch brings ideas of unwanted touch. But I think what we're talking about here is when do we not need to ask? ask? Yep. For touch to right. happen. So, for instance, in my baseball team, right. there was, like most baseball teams, we slapped each other on the butt after a good play. Mm. Uh, that was something that, you know, I didn't say, hey, Jimmy, come here and slap my butt. Right. I made a good play. It was just something that happened. There was something that was authentic about that. Right. It was sort of part of the culture of your team. part of the culture of the team. It was understood. Right. Um, it was a way of congratulating each other. I think the sports team example is a good one. I think there are a lot of other sports teams that maybe it's not the slap on the butt, but it's just sort of when you're engaged in this like physical activity, the process of touching your teammates or mm-hmm. your, the people around you sort of feels natural and authentic. So is that then a definition of when do you not ask for touch when something seems authentic, when something seems natural? Because even that has some level of subjectivity and the necessity for understanding the culture, understanding the right. uh, the expectations. I'm thinking about an episode that we did earlier on. I think it was episode four, our intro to intimacy. The first episode we did where we were talking about sex. I think I talked about the consent castle metaphor mm-hmm. in that episode. Do you remember that? Vaguely, but remind viewers again what it is. The consent castle metaphor is a reference to a webcomic that I had run into online. I, I can't remember. I don't know if it was sourced when I saw it. So I apologize if you're listening and you're like, hey, that's my idea. But I love it. I think the consent castle is a really good metaphor. So what it is, is it's the idea that consent is like building a castle. You know, when you get started, you need to do a lot of communication around planning how you're going to build this castle, where yeah. the different piece is going to go and what do you want it to look like and so forth. And then as the castle grows and you start kind of living in it, less overt communication is needed because you have something that you've built that has a foundation and you feel safe in it and so forth. But even castles, once they're built, need maintenance. And so that doesn't mean that once the castle's built, communication is over. It just means that maybe we need to, if we're going to build an addition or or do some work on one of the rooms, maybe we need to have a a new conversation about what that work is going to look like and and so forth. So when I'm thinking about this with regard to touch, thinking that when we're in a new relationship or when we're in a new context, I think having this metaphor in the back of our minds can be a helpful guide. You know, maybe we move forward with caution. Maybe day one after baseball tryouts, we're not like, slapping butts in practice, <laughs> right? maybe it's after we've been practicing for a couple of weeks, we've gotten comfortable yeah. with everybody, the people who've been on the team longer are sort of modeling with each other the way that the interactions on the team take place, and then the new newer folks can kind of, as they get comfortable, start integrating into those norms. As we go forward, I, and as we get more comfortable, I think we kind of expand, but starting from a place of 
let me observe, let me kind of feel this out, let me notice what's comfortable, and let that build on itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that touch can be a part of that foundation building. But maybe touch is like a, a shaking of the hand, or a fist bump, or right. a, kind of a, a side hug. And then the more that you get to know a person, uh, then you can incorporate different types of touch. The baseball team, slap on the, on the butts. Right. The full frontal hugs, uh, the kisses, those types of things. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that remembering what we're talking about with regard to sexual abuse in terms of there are definitely some folks out there who touch mm. can be triggering for, and we don't yeah. want to be disrespectful of that, especially when we don't know who's experienced what. But we also don't want to be so anxious about touching someone and triggering yeah. them that we never engage in touch. I think finding ways to touch people that we don't really know very well that gives them the opportunity to give their consent is a really good habit. So definitely. like you mentioned the handshake or the fist bump. Mm-hmm. I think that's great because you can't do a handshake or a fist bump by yourself you need to have the other person participating and it's easy enough for the person to be like oh I'm sick you know I don't really want to offer my hand it's easy to get out of that if you're not comfortable with it kind of a thing and I think that being tentative about touch in the beginning without maybe avoiding it altogether conveys respect and an understanding that we don't know what this person's boundaries are yet Mm -hmm. and then that creates a solid foundation for the relationship to grow and if someone's not comfortable with touch like it doesn't necessarily mean that they've been abused for some people touch has extra meaning and extra significance and so well what a transition then to thinking about what we've been talking about over the course of our podcasts and that's romantic relationships and intimate relationships and one of the positive things about touch is that it feels good There's a positive neurological experience that goes on around touch. For one thing, our limbic system, and the limbic system is the part of our makeup that's responsible for fight or flight responses, that this calms down in most situations. Mm. We see this with folks in hospitals who receive stabilization of heart rates following being touched by a loved one. A friendly touch, connected to or not connected to sex, releases some amount of oxytocin. The bonding hormone. That's right. The (laughs) hormone that creates a sense of of closeness. Uh, Of course, oxytocin gets released in spades when hugging someone or having sex with them. Yeah. There was a study a few years ago released in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. People who cuddle with their partner are more likely to feel affectionate toward their partner and have more pleasurable sex. And this is true for people of all genders. That's really interesting. That's like a chicken and the egg. What do you mean? I mean, is it the cuddling that makes the person's sexual interactions more satisfying? I don't I don't know how to characterize yeah. it. I don't, know the yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's satisfying or more frequent or whatever it is, but is it the cuddling that leads to the sexual behavior or is it the feeling affectionate and having a strong sexual relationship? Does that then lead to wanting to cuddle more chicken or the egg? Uh, but many of the couples that we work with have removed touch from the relationship. And that's a really good point. You know, what is the reason for them removing touch from the relationship? Have they removed touch from the relationship because that's just a choice that they have? Have they removed touch from the relationship because the relationship no longer seems safe? Mm-hmm. There's often good reasons for this. But one of the things that we want to do as couples therapists is figure out how to reincorporate touch into the relationships that we're working with. I'm thinking about how, what we were talking about earlier, about the pairing of affectionate touch with sexual touch Mm -hmm. for some folks. And I'm thinking about how, for some couples, the pattern arises that 
when there is affectionate touch, that touch carries the expectation with it that sex is going to come next. And so I think if we're talking about the avoidance of touch, I think for some couples who maybe there's like a desire discrepancy or whatever, it might be that if someone feels like, oh, my partner's touching me, that means that they want to have sex and I don't really want to have sex right now, so I'm going to withdraw from this touch. Right. Maybe if that pattern plays out over time, we start avoiding touch. Mm -hmm. For couples, practicing touch that does not lead to sex is important because we don't want to assume that just because we're touching right now means that we are obligated to move into sexuality right now. And I think similarly, we also want to have ways of being comfortable letting our partner know, hey, I don't want to have sex right now and having there not be a consequence to that. I think having a practice of touch that doesn't lead to sex is good because then it takes pressure out of touch and, and prevents couples from maybe beginning to avoid touch. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And let's talk for a minute about what that type of touch might look like. For lack of a better term, I'm going to call this safe touch. All right. Safe touch is somewhat hard to describe using language, but let's say that it's more caressing, less massage. It's not jarring or discontinuous, leaving the person that you're touching being surprised. It's slow. It has an even tempo. And this is going to be important to remember for the next few exercises that we mention. Sounds like we're talking about a, a very specific kind of touch. And I think you're right. I'm not sure. I don't know if safe touch is the right word for it, but I'm not sure what else to call I'm it. I'm not either. sure what else to call it either. I think it'll make sense as we move into talking about some specific ideas. Definitely. And actually, is it okay if we do that? Can yeah, we move into talking about ideas that we have? So if you have a partner, try the following Hold your partner's hand. And let your fingers run around your partner's hands and fingers. Explore the crevices between their fingers, the veins on their hands. But rather than trying to make your partner feel good, explore what feels good for you. Touch for your own pleasure. Maybe you find that you enjoy that running your fingers through the bumps. Maybe you determine that you like the colder parts of the hand rather than the warmer parts. Take notes. And then talk for a few minutes with your partner about what you learned that you enjoy. Don't set the expectation that your partner has to cater to your likes moving forward. But at the same time, trust that your partner will learn something about you and can do with that information whatever he or she wants. It sounds, Jeremiah, like you're using some of the ideas from Sensate Focus. Yes. So Sensate Focus, for anyone who hasn't heard of it before is a series of exercises that sex therapists will often give to couples the purpose being to get in touch with your physical experience and Mm -hmm. kind of get out of your head so to speak you know to kind of move outside of the anxieties about wondering if you got everything done that you needed to do that day Mm -hmm. or what have you but just being present being present in your own body and being present with your partner's body and just sort of keeping your attention on what's happening right now. Yeah. And so, Jeremiah, in the description of if a person is touching their partner's hand, they're really kind of not focusing on the grocery list or what's expected at work tomorrow or what did the kids do today. Or It just feels good to touch. I feel connected to my partner when I touch. What feels good about touching my partner's hand right now? So and, just, and just staying focused on the present and being in that moment. So, since they focus, what you're talking about 
then moves from touching a partner's hand to touching a partner's entire body. That's right. So if you're interested in this exercise, we will kind of have a proviso that before doing this, take a half hour or so to enjoy each other. Have a nice light dinner. Watch a TV show together. And then go to bed together and have one person lay on the bed on their stomach. This person is invited to take their clothes off, including or not including underwear. We will call this person in this conversation the initial receiver for the sake of explaining the exercise. The other partner, we'll call them the initial giver, then takes 15 minutes to caress their partner. And this is the safe touch that you were talking about. Exactly. That yeah, a caress yeah. is a slow, gentle touch yeah. that's about curiosity of what feels good for you. So yeah. maybe a caress is a better word that's for safe, safe touch. touch. Yeah, because yeah. I think massage is also safe sure. feeling touch yeah. most of the time for people. But we're not talking about massage. We're talking about, I, I like the word it's caress. Gentle, kind of continuous, mm-hmm. slow movement. And move your hands slowly around your partner's body. Exploring whatever piques your interest. Don't spend too much time in one area. And again, make sure that your hand is consistently and slowly moving. Don't remove your hand from contacting your partner, as that can seem jarring. As for the initial receiver, their job is, well, to receive. Focus on your breathing. Pay attention to parts of you that receive pleasure. In the 15 minutes, switch positions, and the initial giver receives touch for 15 minutes. At the end of that time, talk with each other about what you learned about your own bodies. What felt good? What didn't feel particularly good? Talk about your own experience and not the experience of your partner. And a few nights later, try this again with this time each of you lying on your backs. In the same process only, we're exploring the fronts of our bodies, our chests, our stomachs, um, the fronts of our legs, our genitals. So in sex therapy, Mm -hmm. these kinds of exercises are sort of prescribed, if you will, for specific reasons often to do with anxiety. The point of this, as we were saying before, is really to emphasize that experience of being present. And the touch in these exercises is not goal-directed. A lot of times when we're having sex with our partner, we're really focused on the goal of orgasm or really worried about... Is my partner having a good time in this moment? How can I make sure that they're having a good time? So we're kind of goal-directed in our touching and in our sexuality. And so these exercises take the goal out. You're not trying to do anything in particular other than just, what does this feel like? And being curious about that. And what happens when that pressure is taken away? Do we feel more relaxed? Are we able to enjoy things in a way that feels different than if we're wondering what the meaning of this particular type of touch might be? And if you don't have a partner, take 15 minutes to do this to yourself, lying down on your back. This is a way of completely redefining masturbation, Mm. by the way, and a way of relearning that arousal can happen in ways that... Don't focus strictly on stimulating the genitals. If you notice yourself becoming aroused, take note of it. Don't immediately rush to making yourself orgasm. Take your time. Slow, gentle, continuous caress, touch. You and your partner deserve this time and deserve this attention. I think that the idea of self-touch, and especially self-touch that's not necessarily genital focused, is a really positive way to 
build a feeling of positivity with our bodies. We live in a culture that really teaches us that our body is the enemy mm-hmm. and that if our body is not perfectly thin or muscled or right in yeah. some way, that there's something wrong with it, that it's a problem, we need to fix it, and a lot of us are at war with our bodies. And so touch in this in this sort of nice, pleasurable way can really be a way to remind ourselves that I can feel good in this body. My body can bring me pleasure and joy and a sense of safety and kind of a groundedness in myself. And so I think if you are someone who feels that sense of war with your body and you are willing to give this exercise a try, incorporating purposeful thoughts of gratitude and appreciation for your body Mm, while engaging in the touch can be really powerful. You know, if you're touching your own hand and you're thinking sounds so corny, but I'm grateful for my hands and for all they can do, especially if you've recently broken your hand. <laughs> right? You know, I'm, I'm so grateful for being in this body and for the ability to feel these good feelings. Well, there's something not just recalibrating about that to our bodies, but there's something that's healing about that. Yeah. We are providers of our own caress, of our own safe, exploratory, curious touch. The act of giving ourselves that time and that attention is really, really important in helping us receive touch both for ourselves and then also being able to give touch to other people in really positive ways. It's a big anxiety reducer. Definitely. Uh, And this is true in in all kinds of contexts with holding hands, cuddling, uh, sex, masturbation. uh, masturbation. I think that's our episode for today. Yeah. Thanks for checking in again, and thanks for sticking with us. Our next episode will be in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we don't Hopefully run into don't... any more health problems yes, along s- the way. Or snowstorms. I was just going to say snowstorms are probably a little more likely. New England, not... New England winters are not predictable. So We're not see. out of the woods yet. We'll see how we do. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Again, if you have any questions, feel free to email us undercovers 2017 at gmail.com. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. And also check us out on our website, ssfamilyhc.com. Or give us a call at 617-750-0183. Have a great day. Take care, everyone. Bye. Under the Covers is a production of Jeremiah Gibson and Stephanie Wallace, couples therapists at South Shore Family Health Collaborative in Quincy, Massachusetts, the premier location for relationship therapy in the greater Boston and South Shore areas. For more information about Jeremiah and Stephanie, or to schedule an appointment, check them out online at www.ssfamilyhc.com or call 617-750-0183. This podcast can be found on iTunes and Stitcher by searching under the covers, the music of relationships.